Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. This week is the U.S. Senior Women's Open, a really exciting event being held at the historic Chicago Golf Club. Chicago Golf Club is one of the best golf courses in the country and also one of the most private, especially with coverage and different things. So really exciting to get to talk to both the historian of Chicago Golf Club, John Moran, and the golf course superintendent, Scott Bordner. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. The first 30 minutes or so is with John, and then the back half of it is with Scott. If you're in the Chicago area, be sure to come out to Chicago Golf. Great opportunity to walk one of the best golf courses in the country. No ropes, right with the players, and see some of the greatest architecture in the world. Without further ado, here's John Moran and Scott Bordner. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. There's a lot of confusion, I think, in the world of golf with the first, you know, Shinnecock was the first established club. I think there's a course in Charleston that says, or a place in Charleston that says they had the first golf. I know St. Andrews and Yonkers claim something. Chicago golf is the first 18-hole club, right? Correct. In fact, the first 18-hole course was at the original Chicago golf, and I have contemporaneous newspaper articles about it. It was built at the Belmont course, which is now the Downers Grove Park District, before we moved to Wheaton. So that, in fact, was the first 18-hole course in the United States, and we have an old letter from the USGA giving testament to that. So you guys have, you're the only one with proof that it's the first 18-hole course. Well, we have a letter. I'm I'm taking that as proof whether it is or not. (laughs) Founder of Chicago Golf Club, Charles Blair McDonald, among others, was really instrumental in bringing golf from abroad and the first it, what sparked his interest was around a golf in lake forest which is north of the city right a field golf really kind of what today would be called pasture golf right he actually mcdonald went to university and university he he left when he was 16 years old so he, but he went to university in st andrews and there he learned the game from old tom morris and actually competed against young tom morris So when he came back, the Chicago Fire just happened, and you couldn't be in business in Chicago and have some pastime. They would look at you like you're nuts. So he went 20 years without really touching a golf club unless he went overseas on a trip. And they had the Columbian Exposition or the World's Fair in Chicago in 1893, I think it was. And they had a contingent come over from the U.K., and they were going to be there for two or three years and they wanted something to do. And so the organizer of it, Hobart Chatfield Taylor, heard about this and knew that McDonald knew something about golf. So he, Hobart Chatfield Taylor took them up to his in-law's estate in Lake Forest, and McDonald laid out a six-hole golf course for the guys from the U.K. to play. I think, I'm not sure, he'll feature later in the segment, but one of the guys was actually H.J. Wiggum, who ended up being the third U.S. amateur champion of the United States. Second and third. So McDonald's got, uh, he's one of the most interesting characters. I think him and Tillinghast of the old, you know, beginnings of American golf. If you were going to describe the way that you would portray McDonald's personality and, uh, in, in a few words, how would you kind of describe what the character through all your reading, all your research that, uh, CB McDonald was strong, willed, (laughs) competitive, feisty, in charge, I'm right. You're wrong. Did that ca- did that capture it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I, so f- famously, he uh, he protested the first amateur championship. Actually, the Andy, the first two amateur championships <laughs> that he had agreed to play in, and he only protested them after he finished second. So it actually took one of the one of the reasons the USGA was formed was because. He had. They had decided they needed a national championship, and Newport, and I think it was St. Andrews, were going to stage this, but they were going to stage it th- their own. And after, if he had won 
I'm sure he would have recognized that as the first one. But since he lost, then then he said, oh, we have to form a proper one. And that was actually one of the beginnings of the USGA was the move to form formalize something that could anoint an, an amateur champion. And he, he couldn't protest it anymore once it was formed, right? Can you imagine the pressure on him the third time? Because he, he could, absolutely couldn't, positively couldn't protest the third time, could he? <laughs> so the, the original course, they say, was... Um, you know, it was built around the boundary boundary line, and and uh, McDonald famously hit a, a left to right shot, and it, every single hole is a hook for out of bounds. So, do, do you think there was any credence in him designing a golf course that would be really hard for him to hit anything out of bounds? Oh, absolutely. I mean, he was obviously super competitive, and if you remember in those days, if it doesn't make sense to folks listening why a hook would be bad. Remember in those days they were playing in jackets and ties and no matter the weather. And so the today the propensity is to slice the ball. In those days it was to hook the ball unless you're a McDonald and he actually sliced the ball on his bad shots. So he certainly would have thought about that, I'm sure. Because he, he did that at Belmont too, it's my understanding. Mm-hmm. And he did it here. And the urban legend, I don't know how true it is, is that the origination of an out-of-bounds rule was actually at Chicago Golf because all of the members at that point got tired of hitting their hooking their balls into the farm fields because he had routed the golf course that way. <laughs> quite quite a dude. Uh, <laughs> when did you become a member at Chicago Golf Club and I think one of the most is one of the most fascinating stories how you became a member. So, it actually begins as a 12-year-old caddy. So, my dad worked for Sears for 40 plus years and we moved around a bit and when we moved to Wheaton in in the early 70s, um, we used to drive past this place, and we knew it was a golf course, and there was one hole, the only hole you could really see from the road. I remember my dad saying, oh, my God, that hole must be 600 yards long. Look how long it is. Well, it's actually our 14th hole, our Cape hole. It was actually the second shortest par four on the course. But anyway, I had some friends who were older than I was who started caddying, and I was I was 11, and they were 13, and they had caddied, and I couldn't caddy. And so the next year, I was big enough to tell them I was 13. I was really 12. And so I started caddying here, and I caddied here for four years, and then I was the caddy master for three years after that. And during that time, I I, I I was not part of the history, but I got to be here for some of the history. I got to be here when Ben Crenshaw shot 62, which we may talk about later. I got to caddy in the finals of the 79 U.S. Senior Amateur for a guy named Lou Emig. Um, and so I was here for a long time. And interestingly enough, my dad called somebody in the club and they knew me. I had been around so long and they knew me. I knew them. I was probably the safest junior member they, they, they ever had who wasn't part of a family. And one thing or another, he, my dad called me and said, if you want to be a member of Chicago Golf, you have to call this person. And I had no inkling that this was in my future. So I, I was actually a junior member here when at age 21 and have been I milked the junior membership for a long time. But so I've in effect with a couple summers off for college internships, I've been here since nineteen seventy seven. So there's a few people left that have been here longer than I am, but it's it's getting fewer and fewer, I'm sorry to say. If uh if you were coming out here spectator, never had been here before, what would be your advice to that person? You mean like a spectator for yeah, the event? For the, for the event. The coolest thing about the event, well, I'm sorry, not coolest. One of the cool things about the event is that there aren't going to be any fairway ropes, and there's not going to be any grandstands. They're going to let the they're going to let the fans walk along with the players in the fairway. Which, if anybody had been here for a Walker Cup or has been to a Walker Cup, that's or an amateur too, I think that's how they do it. So you're actually going to walk the fairways with Joanne Carner and Sally Little and Julie Inkster and Laura Davies. So that by itself will be super cool. If somebody asked me, "Gee, is there one place I could go to see a lot of action?" What I would tell them is that um, our punch bowl green, the 12th green, has has a, like a hillock that runs around it. And if you stood at the top of that, you could see them play the 12th hole. You could see them play the 13th hole, which is the Eden hole. You could see them tee off there and really p- play the whole hole. You could see them putt on the 8th hole, and you could see them tee off on the 9th hole. That's probably the, the one central point. I think for for architecture nerds who who you've turned my son into, thank you. His grades have suffered because of the Friday podcast. But if for architecture nerds, just going along and finding, okay, where's the Redan? Where's the Redan? 
oh my God, that's the Redan. Look at that thing. That's cool all by itself. And then even for people who wouldn't be in that of that ilk, if you go along and you see the you see the Redan hole, you see the Beeritz hole, people get a sense that wow, that I've never seen anything like that. That's really unique, really. And how did they build that in 1923? I think that all by itself will be will be really cool. Of course, the real story are the players. We're just a backdrop for the story, so I don't want to I don't want to overplay the, the the golf course. But I think for people who are really into it, the combination of seeing these famous players play our golf course will be really really amazing. I think another thing that's kind of neat about the event that you're hosting the Senior Women's Open is the first one, the inaugural one, which obviously carries a lot of weight. But the other aspect is the game that the senior women play versus the game that a you know a traditional say a traditional u.s open would play the game is far closer to the game that this golf course was built to right. ho- to host it with a you know a lower trajectory shots um le- uh, less spin uh, you know a a running shot more often than you know a high spinning shot that we see so the golf course and the architecture should actually show better and more representative of what they uh, intended when they laid it out. Not it's not going to be perfect because I know some of some of these ladies still hit the ball, you know, sure. pretty long distance. Sure. But it should be a lot closer, and we should see shots using the contours more so than than uh, in in most USGA events. I'm really excited to see a few things. I'm excited to see them play the Redan and see if anybody's going to kind of try to run it up around the corner of the Redan. I'm excited. Our punch ball hole every day for everyday play is a par four. And they're just going to play from a back tee as a par five. And the interesting thing is that there's, there are two cross bunkers that go across the fairway. And I had a, um, a qualifier from Wisconsin, Maggie Leaf out a couple of weeks ago through a friend of a friend. And, I didn't say anything to her, but when we got to the 12th hole, I was watching everything she did because I was fascinated to see, could she drive it past that? How would she take that on? And then as a par five, she wouldn't, you know, Laura Davies may be long enough to hit it into, we'll, we'll see. But um, from that back tee, I'm sure she will be. But um, I knew Maggie couldn't. And But the layup area is pretty complicated because there, there's a there's a cross bunker in the fairway and then there's there's a central bunker right in the middle of the fairway. So you've got to navigate that. And depending on how you navigate that, you could have a blind pitch into the punch bowl green. I'm really fascinated to, to watch watch the players take that on and see how they do it. Um, I'm also really fascinated to see where the USJ puts the pins and how the women navigate the greens from a short game perspective and from a putting perspective. It'll be really interesting. The other cool thing is it's closer not only to what Rainer did in 23, you know, we had the 28 Walker Cup, and my guess is they might be hitting the ball some of the same relative same distances that Bobby Jones and, and Chick Evans would. But it's also probably closer to what I play, to what the normal membership play. And so seeing that for us, I think, will be really cool. As I, there's a lot of, uh, you know, famous pros that are into architecture that prefer watching the women's game because you get to see so much more of the architectural features. That's what I'm, I'm really excited to see is to get out here and, and see how they, how they play the golf course and see different shots. Like even the first hole, which is a quasi two shot Redan playing into that green with a, with a long iron it, right. is, it will be really fun to watch. Um, and you highlighted that punch bowl, uh, is a, a great spot to, to watch from. And you could see everything from Eagles to, if you don't hit a good drive, all of a sudden that's a tough par, right. uh, for a par five. So when you were a kid caddying here, did you know how special this place was? No, I knew pretty much immediately. Although I, at 12 years old, I wouldn't have verbalized it. I knew pretty much immediately that it had taken a special place in my heart. Um, and really the first inkling I had of how special it was when Ben Crenshaw started staying here during the Western Open. And we obviously had a cottage, so it was a convenient place to play, and he could come out here and practice. But he was here, my sense anyway, he was here because he wanted to be here and because this place held some unique some uniqueness for him and I knew he was into history and that's the first really inkling of I knew the members talked about gee this is the Beeritz hole that's the Redan hole 
but the linkage to no that actually means something and there's way more than just Chicago golf and and there's an important historical linkage that's the first point at which I really got a sense that holy cow this is something this is something really cool um, and so I probably got a sense of that in the 80s or something like that. And when we, we had a significant agronomic upgrade in around 2000 when John Jennings came here. And at that point, all of a sudden, some of the features really took on a, a sharper edge, I'll say. And you could really see, holy cow, that spine running through the middle of the Levin hole or leaving hole, whichever, um, is, that's amazing. I, you know, I used to hit the ball up there and it would just stick. Now it bounces any way under the sun. You really get, get a greater appreciation of it. Yeah. That green's unbelievable. Um, I cherry pick that cause I know it's your favorite. Yeah. It's a, I just, I love that green. It's I, so a source of so many bogeys of people hitting it in two and just you getting you. on the wrong side of the spine. You bet you. Um, so what would you say during your time caddying, what was your most memorable loop? You touched on Crenshaw 62, uh, finals of the senior am. Yeah. You know, certainly the 62, the Crenshaw came out after a round, after a tournament round of the, of the Western open. And our pro at the time, Don Stickney had played college golf with Nicholas and Weisskopf. And so they put on a little exhibition, the three of them and Ed Sneed. And I got to, I got to cart caddy for them and um, it was really just me and them, and there was probably 20 members watching or something like that, and Ben finished 3-3-3, which is eagle, birdie, birdie, to shoot 62. Unfortunately, somebody flipped him a second ball at the first tee that he hit. We didn't play it. We played the original one, but that made it not count, but to me, that's the, that's the course record, and I'm standing by it, but just watching him go in the zone, but also, you know, he is my number one golf idol, um, Chick Evans, who was another member, who was also a member here, would probably be number two. But to be to to have that memory of my golf idol and to see him like right up close and personal, that certainly is the most memorable round. I mean, I, I other memorable things are helping you know um, Mrs. Brewster make a hole in one. You know, rest in peace, Mrs. Brewster. But that would certainly be the number one. Uh, he was like a rock star then. You know, back he in the was day. a rock star. He well. In in my house, he still is. My kids aren't quite sure why, but he still is in my house. <laughs> Gentle Ben, <laughs> you betcha. Um, so when do you? So now you're you serve the role as a historian at Chicago Golf. Yes, you, yeah. So we have a, a we have a small history committee, and it's not a new thing necessarily. I mean, the biggest thing that had been done is in ni- 1992 was our centennial, and uh, one of our members had had gotten Ross Goodner to write a centennial book, which is a fat, really fabulous history book. Um, about seven or eight years ago, our board decided to take what had been uh, an old uh, ladies' lounge that hadn't been used in how many decades and turned it into a history room, which was a good thing. What it also did, though, it, it created a deadline of, oh, my God, we better fill that thing up with things that are compelling. And, and frankly, we've made a lot of progress with saving our history and things, but it's going to be, you know, it'll keep me occupied and out of my wife's hair for, for many years to come. But there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of great history here that we don't know we have in the building. And I'm sure we'll touch on that. And, or we need to seek out a newspaper articles and things like that. So we really understand our history. And it's part of the reason, the reason for that is sure, this is a historical club, but we want Chicago golf to be Chicago golf 50 years from now and hundred years from now and who we were and our history and the culture that we've had over all that time is an important part of keeping it that way. So you've been diving into all different types of sources of information, the stuff around the clubhouse. What's been the most rewarding aspect over the years of, of being in this role? What's, is there a moment or a, you know, a find? Well, actually, the thing that sticks out is I had a mental list of things I wanted to do for many, many years. And one of the things I wanted that was on my to-do list was to create some kind of a document or some appreciation for what I think of as the architectural lineage of this place. And the fact that we have the template holes, the fact that there are other instances of the template holes, and here are pictures of the other template holes. And someday I was going to do this when I retired. And this stupid blogger from downtown Chicago beat me to it. He saved me a lot of work, but he beat me to it. He took my copyrighted idea and he made it his own. 
must, uh, uh, must be a smart guy. Yeah. <laughs> really smart. I actually got his autograph on on the printed copy that I made from it. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get back into those. So it's a, uh, they've taken a back seat recently, but we gotta. We and uh, John Cavalier gotta get in there and, no, you and guys update are... a few of those. But they're, it's uh, they're it, so cool. It, it's interesting, you know, the the members of our history committee, like in most clubs, you know, have different interests and different available amounts of time. And one of our members, Jeff Kelly, is really into old clubs, and so we've got a lot of old clubs. My passion really is the golf course, and and it, I think if you ask the typical Chicago golf member, the golf course is what this place is about, and increasing my. So I really appreciate the chance through through Andy, what you've done and other people have done to better appreciate our golf course in context has been a great thing for me. And, you know, not every member is, is into it the way I am or that, you know, you are, but if I get two or three of them to appreciate it more, and I know I've gotten more than that, you know, through those things, that's fabulous because that, you know, our biggest asset is out there. I'm pointing out, out the window at the golf course. I tend to believe that there's kind of a changing tide at, in golf with more and more people are getting interested in, in golf and or in architecture and the courses, which I think is very healthy because it's, you know, that's really the root and the soul of the game is in the golf course. It's not, it's not an equipment. It's not mm-hmm. in, 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 uh, you know, it, 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 it brings back, it brings a different type of, you know, enjoyment level. Do you feel like you've seen, especially since John Jennings came in and, you know, got the golf course playing more true to its original, original self. Do you feel like the memberships, uh, knowledge and understanding and excitement around the golf course has grown? I think so. I think there, maybe the best way to say it is that I think the pride, the, the unique pride uniquely in the golf course is much higher than than when i was a kid you know when because I, I can remember the people i caddy for and, and they appreciated the golf course and that's and, and that's great but i think the holy cow did you see where they put the pin or i didn't know they could have put put a pin there or did you see this bounce i got off off of this mound or um and and you know, we have not Maybe I'll get into it right now, kind of what has happened to our golf course, but I'll finish this bit up. The The appreciation of the golf course that way, I think, is significantly higher now than when I was a kid. And I could have been oblivious to it, too, so I could be wrong. But um, we've had the benefit of having the golf course be pretty untouched since 1923. So we had an original golf course that when we moved here in 1895 that McDonald built and with a, a, you know a lot of nips and tucks here and there by among others the Fallis brothers, it, you know it really stayed that way until until Rainer redesigned it and opened in twenty three, and from twenty three until two thousand, it pretty much was the same. We had no tree planting programs. Fortunately, we had no big restoration projects. The the biggest thing that had happened, which which is still happening, Scott Bordner, our fabulous superintendent. Um, fights this every day is it's a living organism and so trying to keep the mowing lines the same trying to keep the entrances to the bunker the same is is a chore is a, is a job but um so it's been pretty much untouched probably really just for lack of anything is a small membership of being too cheap to put money into it frankly and but that's a good i said that to somebody else recently and they said no no that's you're i think you're probably more onto it than you know um, so the golf course is pretty much the same. Tom Doak started consulting with us in, I think it was 2000. And really his consultation, and I, I hope if he listens to this that he that he thinks this is right, is really around the, the edges of, okay, how are you maintaining it? And, and are there maintenance practices helping or hurting the original design construct? And are there things that we've lost over time that should be restored? Really, fortunately, not very many things, but we certainly, um, I know you were looking at an old picture picture before we started, we certainly recaptured green space. Um, we certainly have our greens really now go right up to the edge of the fill pad, and in some cases, it'll tumble a little bit over. Um, so we, we've had the fortune of not having much done to it, and but even the, even the nips and tucks that have done, the membership appreciate so much better so that was like the longest answer you could have ever imagined to your simple question no that's uh that's good that's good um what would you say of what's your favorite like interesting fact about chicago golf club 
he had to just distill it down to say, we'll give you one or two or three. Yeah. Okay. So maybe what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll use as a judge what I consistently put in my riff for when I have guests here, what I have to tell them about the golf course. So my second golf hero is Chick Evans and not be, and, and sure he's a caddy. And I, I did not have the fortune of being a, an Evans scholar, but um, Chick Evans first came here in the 1903 U.S. Amateur as a, as a caddy. Um, played in not everyone, but most of the event, the major events that were held after the fact. But there was a period of time where, you know, Chick Evans, um, he was an amateur. He had to work for a living, um, but he also wanted to play good golf. And so he started to come out here to practice. And we used to have a lot of cottages here. And we also, when this, the clubhouse we're sitting in opened in 1913, there were rooms that members subscribed to that there were their rooms. And one of our members um, let him stay in that room. And, and what he used to do was he would practice in the morning and he would catch a seven or seven thirty train into the city. He would work all day at the first national bank of Chicago. Then he would catch the train back out and practice at night and get up the next morning and do the same thing. And so I point out to everybody, okay, I'm not sure which of those two windows it is, but it's one of those two windows is the room he stayed in during the period of time when he he won both the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur in 1916. And in his autobiography that he wrote in 21 or 22, he actually credited the ability to have the freedom to practice here and stay here as one of the things that was really instrumental in that. So that's one of my fun factoids that I that uh, is always part of my, my riff. Um, what would you say is the most misunderstood? Like, what's the biggest misconception about Chicago golf to the general public that maybe like is something that people think that isn't true about Chicago golf? Well, I think the biggest thing, the biggest in general, you know, um, conversation is Chicago golf did not start in Wheaton. Chicago golf started in a town called Belmont or by a train, train stop called Belmont, which is present day Downers Grove. And so when McDonald um, built the first Chicago golf club it was at the farm of a Haddo smith who was a, was a scotsman and um that was actually the site of the first 18 hole golf course in the united states pretty much the same time that they he he laid out the 18th hole they started looking for for bigger better property and they they bought the patrick farm here in wheaton but that's probably the most misunderstood thing the other cool thing that i had known about, but I hadn't really internalized or taken the time to really get to know, which is shame on me, is that that golf course still in parts exists. And it's the Downers Grove Golf Club. It's owned by the Downers Grove Park District. And um, I get goosebumps. I've played it five or six times. I get goosebumps when I stand on the first tee because I know where I am. Yeah, I might go over there this afternoon just because it's a, a great place. Yeah, it's a fun little spot. Unbel- you know, what I'm surprised about is how good the land is there they wanted to move over here like that's a really great piece of land over there it is and and i don't i've not found a lot of dialogue i don't know if it was just too small or what it was but the the other thing that it did share a common characteristic with this is that it had easy access to rail and like a lot of the cl- clubs at least in chicago they're on rail lines and and you know in in chicago golf's case we had both the aurora and elgin railroad line and then that is now the Illinois Prairie Path, as well as the the existing train line that runs through Wheaton. So uh, what would be your advice, say somebody's listening that wants to start to dig into the history of their club? Like, how would you, what would you start? And I know you have a, you prioritize stuff because there's so much. Oh, I try and I fail. It's like every time I prioritize something, I'm on to something else in in two seconds and I forget what the priority was. Uh Uh-huh. I know you don't have that problem, Andy. Oh, I have that problem in spades. It's a huge <laughs> problem of mine. So what would be your piece of advice to somebody that would say they they wanted to start to dig into history at their club or course they play that's got, you know, say it's a you know, an older place. Right, right. Where what would you start by doing? So the first thing I would do is I would just rummage around and if it's an old place, likely it's an old building. And I would rummage around the old building because you probably have things that you don't know you have. The best best example I can give you here is is one of our one of our longtime staff was working in some room I didn't even know existed, and there was a file cabinet. Behind the file cabinet, he he found this thing, 
and he brought it to me and he said, you know, I don't know what this is, but it looks significant. And what it ended up being was the commendation from the USGA for holding the 1928 Walker Cup is signed by Prescott Bush, who, of course, is George Herbert Walker Bush's father. So first thing is you probably have some things that you don't know you have. The second thing, and I've come to Don Holden at at, uh, at Exmoor is the one who's really pushed me, is figure out storylines. So I, I started, you know, a handful of years ago just pulling down every, I was on newspapers.com and I was going year by year pulling every in, instance of it. There's just, there's just too much stuff. And they, they used to fill a lot of newsprint, so there's really is too much stuff. But pick a subject area. So for example, we just talked about the first 18 holes course in the United States. So for me, it was worth going out and researching, finding articles, contemporaneous articles that said, oh, and McDonald's, here are the scores on the 18-hole course, or McDonald laid these 18-hole the holes around to, to, to build out a storyline about aspects of your history that you kind of know you have, but you want to make into a fuller story that people would appreciate. It's kind of like uh, pulling the thread in, the, uh, exactly. in the clothing, you know, just keep pulling down stuff and you can find more and more i know like a buddy of mine was like fascinated by the statue out in front and he spent like three days in the usga archives and he's convinced it's hj wiggum he's he shared peter has shared that with me and and we i think we've come to the agreement that since nobody else has a better story and by the way the statue andy is referring to is the far insurer golfer in our logo that since there's no other story that that we're going with peter's story is the official urban legend yeah all right. Well, John, thanks for coming on. Uh, we're excited to watch the coverage this week. We'll see. We'll be out here and uh, you know, fans can come out. Um, we encourage chance. them to. And yeah. remember that um, I think it's 18 and under is free. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a fabulous place to, to come and we hope you come. Yeah. Get to walk right down the fairways. So definitely worth coming out if you're in the area or uh, even a couple hours away and you want to come see it. So Thanks for coming on and look forward to watching this week. Great. Thanks, Andy. Now for part two of our podcast with golf course superintendent Scott Bordner. What do you do when you're not at uh, Chicago Golf Club? I have two little boys, six and eight, that are energetic as can be, so they keep me busy. Uh, Fishing, tennis, watching their baseball games, and try to sneak some golf in here and there. I imagine that it's actually a pretty good gig for like you're getting off right when your kids get off school, right? <laughs> Not so much. No. It's usually a 5 to 5 shift. <laughs> uh-huh. I feel like I I'm on your guys' schedule this uh today. It's uh, I couldn't couldn't handle it this morning. I was I was sitting at home during lunch and I was like, "I I, I need a nap." This is easy. Tournament time is next week, and the uh, first shift starts at 4 a.m., so we got to be here by 3.30. That's uh, How's the setup, uh, you know, for an event like this change, you know, your year? Is it Has everything been geared towards this, or? Yeah, normally we make our calendar uh, more based on weather. This we have to implement... We, we almost have to start at the tournament and work backwards with some of your spray schedule and some of your timing of things and also pay attention to weather at the same time. So did you do like aerification earlier? Uh, just pencil tiny greens, letting them breathe at the right times. Like this morning, even though we've had a little bit of rainfall, you know, having to do a application that we water in just to make sure it's in the soil leading up to the event. How many other big events have you put on as either assistant or a head super? I was part of the 2005 U.S. Amateur at Marion and then ran the East Course uh, under a director of golf in 2009 for the Walker Cup. That's, uh, you like working with USGA? Good people? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time. They're actually, they're, they're a lot more careful. Everybody's fearful of making a mess or what are they going to do to the golf course? Or they just take over and, and that's completely the opposite. I mean, the team that's been on site here has the, we only have one set of ruts out there and it was for me trying to drive a lift out to fix the flagpole. 
Um, so I did more damage than they did in two weeks just by operating one piece of machinery. I imagine that this event is kind of like the ideal for like low impact on a golf course because there's not a ton of grandstand. I, you know, people are going to be able to walk pretty close to players. It's not, you know, versus like a U.S. Open or even, I mean, a USM, you get decent foot traffic, I imagine. Yeah. I mean, we hope for a little bit drier weather. Anytime you're sloshing around in wet soil, it could make a little bit of a mess. But the fact that the fans get to come out and walk down the fairways with the players, it takes the traffic from one concentrated area and spreads it out. Uh, they have the little mobility scooters that they ride around, and they asked me what the restrictions were leading up to the event. None. Spread it out. Just don't drive on the greens, please. Yeah. You know, you touched on the fans, so they get to walk down the fairways. Awesome experience uh, opportunity for people. You know, it's one of the hardest golf courses ever to get to see. If you were a fan coming to Chicago Golf Club for the first time, what would be your advice to that fan? I would wander around to the corners. I mean, the the biggest... Uh, the most exciting holes out here are some of the par threes, which are tucked away in the corners, and you could hit the punch bowl on your way by on number 12. Uh, it's it, There's not a lot of elevation change on the property, so it's a pretty easy walk, but there's a variety of elevation as you're playing. So walking is, it's a pretty easy walk, but there's still some interesting topography. It is interesting. It's of all of the top, you know, there's a top tier of golf courses, you know, say it's 15 to 20 courses. I feel like this is the one that's got the least desirable land, but it's also the one that's arguably got the most incredible greens. And then the way it's routed where how they use the land is absolutely, I mean, you don't feel like you're in Chicago when you're out here being a Chicagoan that's played pretty much everywhere. Everywhere's so flat, and even with the modest elevation, they just use it so well out here. Yeah, they didn't They didn't move a tremendous amount of soil, like you said, and it's interesting how they just carved the template holes into what they had to work with. And fortunately, they didn't move a lot of soil because there's really good topsoil right on the top couple feet for me. Rainer was an engineer, and I, I've noticed with a lot of his courses, they seem to drain. Does it drain really well here? Yeah, so we're still trying to figure out how they installed 6.7 miles of clay tile pipe in 1923 when he did the redesign, and some of it's as deep as 28 feet. Today, with high-powered equipment, we have a hard time doing that same work, and they had steam up steam-powered equipment at best. So that that's one of the biggest things I would have loved to see, like pictures of how they installed all the old drainage. I mean, that's, and it's still that drainage, a lot of it's still being used today? Yeah, we, we went in and did a directional bore for the main line. Um, so we did an 1,800-foot directional bore, which was pretty cool to see how they could pull a pipe across there. And we're slowly working our way around the golf course to any areas that the clay tile pipe has failed, but a lot of it's still in pretty good shape when we dig it up. That's, I mean, it's crazy because you hear about like courses nowadays, like 10 years they have to get their drainage reworked. And, and then it's, it's amazing some of the older stuff, how well it holds up, you know, whether it be buildings and different, you know, all over the place. But, you know, for drainage to be that sophisticated in 1923, is uh it's unbelievable with the usga and in the women's senior open so it's the first one ever do you and it's the first time they've hosted an event here do you think you'll have input in daily setup with the usga agronomy team yeah i mean they've already had questions on the these greens are severely sloped and if the wind starts to blow there's not a lot of trees out here to stop that movement so uh, there was a green chairman who made a map and it has under different wind conditions where you should not put pins. And I didn't follow it a few times and balls would roll into bunkers. So, uh, I made sure to give that to the people in charge. 
<laughs> circle the pins that you've uh, you've had your own personal disasters with. If if you don't learn from your own mistakes, <laughs> you're doing something wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, sometimes I you know some clubs you put off the green all the time, and it's like a it's like, you know Crystal Downs. A, that's a place that I think every member out there has put it off the greens once or twice, but. That's a, that also goes to the the stem speed. Do you, with all the history here, and you know they have a great library. Do you do they have records on what green speeds used to be versus what they are today? Not that I've found. And uh, one of the people from Golf Week actually sent me an old article on what the stem used to be at all these different clubs. And I guess Chicago Golf decided not to take part in that survey. <laughs> uh, but then he had what it was i forget the timing 25 years ago versus what it is now mm-hmm. uh, pretty interesting data it's so chicago golf's one of the one of the places that you know so it's a more closed off place and a lot of people don't know a ton about it what would you you know being somebody that knows everything about it what's the most common misconception that people have about this place when you think of a high profile club you think you know, a lot of money they spend in, in unlimited budget and, you know, snooty members and all that. And it couldn't be the any more opposite here. Uh, it's, it's a group of members who appreciate the history of the game and what it is and what this place means to them. And they understand that they're here to keep it intact and have the same... Uh, experience for the next generation of membership it's it's pretty refreshing but it's not about the frills and uh you you walk into the clubhouse and it's the old metal lockers and old older carpet and you go out to the you go out to the first tee and you just look across and it it reminds you of Lynx golf the way it should be I didn't really know that much about Chicago golf until I started doing this and it's you know I came out here last year and uh I had been out at the Walker Cup, but I hadn't been back in a long time. And, you know, you looked at a completely different lens and, you know, come back when you're older. And I came back and I, I like, I was like, God, you know, this place gets it because it, it seems like there's just no, you know, expense that's like an unnecessary expense, like doled out. There's nothing like ritzy about it. It's just like, it's what you need to be a really good spot to go golf. Yeah, and and you start to understand like when you meet with the memberships, when you when you meet with the different members. So you go into a green committee meeting, and they understand that that is probably the most important committee at the club, and they understand. You know, they're not trying to put in a bunker here because they want it there, or build a new tee box because they want it there and leave their stamp. It's more of let's do the right thing and and keep it preserved like somebody else did before us i imagine uh i you know tom doke on one of our pods said that there was uh one point there was a plan drawn up that had houses on the inside of the property like there's they had a housing plan but Thankfully, that never happened, and for the most part, there's never been like a drastic change here. What was, you know, what were the biggest changes that you kind of made or that were made since you've been a superintendent? The the greens had shrunk over time, but John Jennings had done a lot of that work to bring the greens out back to the pads without moving soil to get them back to where they originally were. Um, changes that we've made we fixed a few bunkers that had bad drainage and found you know some old cinders in the bottom that these these bunkers are the original since 1923 so you know a lot of clubs are replacing sand and fixing their bunkers every 10 to 15 years uh 25 max and you go out there and start digging around and there's still the original cinder that they trucked in on a railroad car uh for the base layer so it's we're currently, you know, looking into redoing bunkers and to be able to take them back because you have all the cinders at the base. It'd be kind of a fun little archaeological dig to see what was originally there. <laughs> Might find some crazy stuff. That's, 
I was down in uh, uh, Richmond last fall. I was walking around this place called Belmont, which is like an old Tillinghast. Ross was there. And they have like just these horrible bunkers. I mean, they've they've decayed over time. And I mean, it's the biggest complaint at this. It's a muni- municipal course. They're going to do this bunker project. And it's funny because you'd walk around and you look at the, which bunkers were really bad. And it was all the bunkers that were built after 1960. And all the original bunkers were actually the bunkers in their best shape. So like their 19, you know, 16 bunkers were the best bunkers they had there. And anything that was built modern, you know, with what we would call modern equipment was actually the worst bunker. So it's, it's amazing how you guys have bunkers that are, you know, still, I mean, extremely playable, still in really good shape. And they're as old as they get. Yeah. And it's interesting to also listen to golfers perspectives. Uh, anytime you're at a golf course, you can ask somebody, you know, what the biggest complaint they hear. And it's usually bunkers here. I have a lot of members that have already said to me, why do we need to fix them? Uh, they're supposed to be a hazard. And I'm, it's a good point. Like as superintendents, we spend so much time and labor on fixing something that was originally intended to be a hazard. Fortunately, most of the members here understand that. And, and we've been able to cut back a lot of the labor in the bunkers and, and they still end up playing just fine. I mean, it's one of the things that like bugs me with what's happened with golf is like how, I mean, bunkers for a lot of pros now are much easier. Like a lot of times I'd rather be in a bunker than be in a, you know, in a bad lie in the rough, you know, like if it's going to be in the rough or the bunker, you usually rather prefer the, the bunker because like, especially with that new, like really bright white sand, the ball just like pops right out of it and you can get spin on it. I mean, and it's like not the way it's supposed to be. And you saw it at Shinnecock, like, you know, people be short-sighted and, you know, they be, they hit in the worst spot they could possibly hit it in. And then people were so upset that they couldn't get up and down from that spot. And it's like, well, you're in a, a horrible place. Like if that was water, you'd be taking a drop and hitting four versus, and I think like, I think that's something that golf, it would be so much better if bunkers became more penal again. And, and it would also save a ton of money, I imagine. Yeah. And there, there was an old CB McDonald quote that said, I would rather run a herd of elephants through the bunkers each morning than rake them every day. And it's in Scotland's gift um, book. And, and here we are to the point where, there's a lot of clubs out there that if you don't rake bunkers every day, you know, it's, well, I didn't get a good lie. It's kind of a, it's, I don't know. CB was a, was a real hoot with some of the stuff he would say. Is What's the kind of funniest thing that you've heard, the best historical thing you've come across at Chicago golf club that since you've been here, like, I mean, probably digging into the drainage system and seeing what they actually did in 1923. Uh, Historically, I'm trying to think of anything else. Going up in the clock tower and seeing the old, it's it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, operating um, mechanical clocks in in the United States, or in the state of Illinois, sorry. Uh, But going up there, and, and the chef would go up there and set, the weights properly so people wouldn't tee off too early (laughs) that's got to be one of the uh, superintendent's biggest gripe is like the guy that tees off before he's supposed to tee off at a country club (laughs) feel like you know they run around and that's never the guy that's considerate of like the maintenance guys you know they're just trying to get their hour 50 in the golfers play fast out here but fortunately if somebody's playing that fast usually there's a gap behind them with a Small membership, not quite as much play. What's the toughest aspect of, of managing this place? I would say there's there's a lot of people, and I completely understand it. If it was my one chance to play Augusta National, 
I wouldn't care if it was raining and lightning and I had to keep going in every three holes. It wouldn't bother me. But that's the biggest difference between here and a lot of places is the weather doesn't matter as much when you have a member bringing three guests out because they could be, they might be in town from far away and this might be their one chance to play it. So that's, that's the hardest part is even during rainstorms or something else, you still have to try to get it in the best shape because somebody's bringing guests out and and you want them to be proud of their golf course and keep it as playable as you can, even in some pretty bad conditions. Yeah. I mean, every time I've seen this place, I feel I was out here in February walking around and I thought, I was like, I you probably could play it today. <laughs> we try, we try. The guys work hard, got a great staff. Yeah. How, how big is your staff here? compared to in in you know for the listeners that wouldn't know how big that staff is it how does it compare to you know other staffs around the area it's it's hard to compare because i have a really unique uh layout of staff Mm -hmm. we don't really need maintenance mondays as much as most clubs because of the low rounds we try to do things more based on weather we don't need to top dress or do some other things on Mondays because we can probably get it done in between groups on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if there's rain coming. Uh, so I have a staff of 34 this year, which we hired a couple extra just with the tournament coming in case a couple guys didn't make it through the summer. And they only work Tuesday through Sunday morning, and then they can play golf on Mondays. And we, we, find that we get people who actually appreciate the golf course more when they're playing on Mondays and it never really dips into overtime and we have a pretty full staff on the weekends. So it's the full-time equivalent is probably 24, 25 guys. How many rounds do you get a year? Last year, I believe we were just a little bit above 8,500 rounds. So it's a, it's pretty quiet. What do you do with all the when people aren't around? Do you ever you know go out and play? Try not to uh, too much in the middle of the day. <laughs> I can kind of sneak out here at night and play a few holes, and I, I like to at least understand the conditions that we're putting out. So I like to play ten to twelve times a year just to make sure I fully understand. Okay this is where we're at, not just from a superintendent's eye, but from a golfer's eye. What's your favorite, say, three, four-hole stretch out here? Three to four-hole stretch. I'm a guy who likes when people are challenged, so I'd have to say one through four. Um, I like to make sure everybody that plays out here, their handicaps travel well. So it's about as hard of a first three hole, you know, four, you can get, you can, you can get a score on, but you can, it also, you could be chipping from the front of that green all, all day. Yeah. But if it's, if it's me playing, yeah. uh, 13 through 16 is a pretty good stretch where I feel like very playable holes for, you know, 10 to 12 handicap like myself. I love that Cape hole, the 14th. That's uh one of the coolest screens, that little little triangle corner you got out there in the front. That's... And and no, nobody can ever read that green. And it's probably the most consistently pitched out of all the greens. But nobody ever thinks it's going to break as much as it does. So it breaks more if a player's listening than you think. I don't give away too many hints right before a tournament. <laughs> um, so... It, we talked about what the toughest part about managing here is. What what do you think in overall, look, looking at the turf industry, um, what's the biggest struggle out there for superintendents and people in the industry? Right now, I mean, we're all pulling from the same pool, uh, landscapers, farmers, trying to get workers. Um, you know, I wish there was more high school kids that, knew that this was an industry and there's a lot of superintendents out there talking to high schools and letting them know, Hey, we're here. I mean, I was fortunate enough to just trip across this industry at the age of 16. And, 
you know, once you start working outside and get to watch the sun come up, especially at a place like this, it, it really gets in your blood and, and it's, it's, I can't imagine doing anything else. Where, where'd you grow up? Uh, and what did at 16, did you start working at a course? Yeah. So I would, my brother, my older brother, uh, was working at the golf course. And when I was 16, I was like, yeah, I want to do that too. So we would work at Park Hills golf course, 36 hole public golf course out in Freeport, Illinois. And we came from a town of 500 people. So the fact that we didn't have a golf team and two of us ended up in the industry is pretty comical. And my dad's probably played 10 rounds of golf his whole life. So my brother was good at golf. So he is now a golf pro at a Rondequoit country club in Rochester. I wasn't good at golf and <laughs> kind of fell into the maintenance side of things and, and really enjoyed it. And now I get an office like this. Yeah. And you get to hang out at one of the one of the places that most golfers would just kill to get to hang out at all the time. And it's yeah, and it's it's hard because you're at work, so you're constantly focused on things that most people wouldn't see. And it's nice to we we get a bunch of interns and assistants that come into town and aren't used to seeing this. And it's kind of refreshing when you get new people out here or you see guests come out here and they're just flabbergasted by what this place is when you're normally just thinking about it as, oh, I'm going to work today. So it's kind of, it kind of keeps you in check. Like you'll see a fog roll over and start to look at things out on the golf course and you're like, wow, look at that. It's uh, I was talking to one of your guys who's from uh, South Carolina. He's a, summer intern and he was telling me he's like yeah man i uh it's crazy i got out here and i was so used to, to dog legs and and water and cart pass and then i got out here and i'm like oh this is this is completely different this isn't anything like what what i'm used to at home yeah tommy rayner hasn't touched this place yet <laughs> tommy probably would love to get his hands on this place though so. uh... He he could do some amazing things with our cart paths. I feel like he'd have fun with the the water the the water hazard out here. He'd get some fountains in there. Yeah, we have bubblers to help with the algae. Uh, no fountains yet though. That's a, for the algal blooms, right? Yeah, so I was an environmental science major, so <laughs> a little bit I know about it. Um, so if say say you hadn't gotten into turf, what what would you be doing? Oh man. I don't know. It's kind of hard to get it out of your system now. <laughs> Dream world. Dream world. Uh, still turf related, but uh, taking care of Wrigley Field. I'm a diehard Cubs fan. Just give me any job at Wrigley Field. Be pretty awesome. Yeah. That'd be a cool job. You probably get that job now. Nah, Justin does a great job down there. How old is he? <laughs> He's pretty young. He is a Cardinals fan though, so See, that's, that's, your, that's how you got playing. You gotta get him out of there. You know, this is I'm actually you know, as a Cubs fan, I'm a little upset that he's a Cardinals fan. Well, Take, he's not anymore. He, he might be mowing the grass different when the Cardinals come to town. He grew know? up he grew up a Cardinals fan. Yeah. It's uh superintendents are known to be some of the most resourceful people in uh in the golf industry what would you uh say is the thing since you came here that you've kind of figured out that saves you either the most time or the most you know money or most resources i would say taking walk mowers off of approaches and sometimes even greens i mean the technology is so good now that you can triplex greens and not really tell that much of a difference golfers can't really tell where before you somebody said you triplex screens and it's like oh they're going to be slow because you couldn't get to the same heights but the the main major manufacturers have done a fantastic job at getting us to the same point with a walker versus a triplex i've heard that the you know you have a lot of squared off greens here and i've heard like always like you know maintenance maintenance is so hard with you know the squared off edges is that a myth or is that true it has its challenges uh we constantly my my assistants and 
other guys are really diligent about marking where the collars are. And then we have really good operators who can get to those points. So you can't really tell. Uh, but it's, yeah, they're not, they're not easy to maintain, but it's, it's not bad. Is that, is it, are green edges like one of the toughest things to maintain throughout a year or throughout a number of years? Collars are more one of the first things to decline, but I'm also saying this with 8,700 rounds of golf. So you can take, if you have a lot of traffic, (laughs) well, if you have a lot of traffic trampling those edges, uh, walk-offs, walk-ons, we just don't have that here as much. Yeah. I was out at a course last week and I, I couldn't believe how much, like I droned late at night and I couldn't believe how much cart traffic I could tell. And then also like, off greens how much walking traffic like you know it's just stuff like as i talk to more people and you know my golfer iq goes up like i just start to notice more and more things and like those are two things i don't think the regular golfer would ever notice but i mean they're it's incredible once you see it you can't unsee it that's where that's where a lot of uh technology is starting to help us out i was looking at a computer program a couple months ago and they actually are coming out with little bits that go on each mower and you can tell exactly where your guys are driving and you can start to sync that up with wear patterns and you know we're, we're getting to the point where you can really just make guys drive where the golfers aren't because even at a golf course with a lot of cart traffic i'd say 20 percent of the cart traffic is still from the maintenance department so if we can start to get our staff going in different directions than the other golf carts, I think I think that'll help the overall cause. It's something it, like the the traffic, and then something that's crazy to me that I'd never really thought about until I started noticing like how Mackenzie and a lot of the Golden Age architects would always have these clusters of greens. And I was talking to Sean Tully, and he's like, "Oh well, yeah, part of that's maintenance. You know, it would be." they'd be so much more efficient. And then you start to think about like what happened in the, in the seventies or the eighties where all these holes are like siloed off into like far reaches is like the gas bill difference between like a very compact, like this is a really compact property where the holes are all pretty close to each other. And it's, it's gotta be pretty easy to get around. But if, if it's stretched out and you know, you're having to drive a long ways, I mean the gas over the course of a year has got to be pretty significant. Yeah, and the hardest part is <laughs> you get out to that farthest point. Oh, I forgot one of the five tools that I needed. You gotta drive all the way back to the shop. It's it's brutal. It's a good excuse. Yeah. I know. You could kill a lot of time if you got a bad <laughs> hangover. You know, you could just be driving around all the day. That's when I when I grew up working at a country club, I would go I'd be like, I'm gonna go pick the range and go go take a nap. No, that's like that's where range. those little bits come in handy too that they're going to put on golf carts you can see a golf cart that hasn't been moving for five minutes <laughs> stalled out busted <laughs> ran out of battery <laughs> um so let's do uh some overrated underrated oh all right everybody's favorite subject say the doors ah uh, not a big music guy no or you mean like like screen doors <laughs> music <laughs> no not big music nah guy. i'll go neutral on that one you got you got pick one all right overrated sure i don't like music i don't like movies you don't like music or movies no how do you not like music or movies just don't i don't have the patience to sit there in a movie i actually kind of agree i since i've gotten really busy i can't i can't sit through movies so I was I was getting I was getting engaged and I was shopping for wedding rings after work at Marion which we'd work till dark every night. And I was so tired cuz I was going out trying to shop quick before the stores would close and I fell asleep in the middle of a movie and my wife doesn't get mad at me very often but she was like not angry but you could tell it was just like seriously we don't get to spend that much time together and then she found out that I was actually out shopping for rings and she felt bad. So I got some brownie points back. Yeah. It's a, it's a good one. She figured it out. But 
Hopefully yeah, she didn't figure it out before you asked. <laughs> no. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh overrated underrated uh Downers Grove <laughs> golf club. Oh, underrated. If you go there and see the land, I I hope they go back and do a renovation or restoration to take it back to what it was. I mean, there's some holes that you can't get back now because the roads through there, but the land is all still there. It's unbelievable. It's uh yeah, that's that site. I mean, you think about this site and that site. That's that site's one of the best pieces of land in in Chicago that I've yeah. ever seen. And I mean, as a overall golfing experience, I went over there and played and we got me and a sales rep from the area got paired with a guy in jeans and a white Sox jersey so i knew it was going to be a great experience if the guy's going to play golf in a white Sox jersey <laughs> it's uh so for people that don't know downers grove that's the original site of chicago golf club and they got a couple of the original holes but yeah you walk up there and nobody knows any like nobody knows anything about the play like you know i asked some people at the front it's it's uh but it's actually a pretty cool little place to go play. It's a nine holer. You can get around quick if you go there early. It's fantastic. The yeah. greens were really good. Yeah. It just if they could take the pads back to what they were and make the greens bigger. I mean, the template is still there. Yeah. It's uh it could be really cool. I uh I hope they they do something one of these days. But uh, I have I hear otherwise. When you said overrated, undergraded, Downers Grove, I thought you meant the town. Well, like, what, wow, what do you think about wow. the ta- what do you think about the town? Love the town. Underrated. Love the town. Yeah, underrated for sure. <laughs> What's the most overrated Chicago suburb? The most overrated Chicago yeah. suburb? Wow, there's a lot of people listening. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you mine after you say most. Uh, I'll go most underrated. Warrenville. I got Big Al's Pizza. See, I'm, I'm gonna say overrated Hinsdale. Just my my wife's from there. <laughs> I think it's overrated. <laughs> so <laughs> that's my two cents. She doesn't listen to the pod though, so I don't have to worry about any backlash. Perfect. <laughs> All right, Scott. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, excited to see the golf course this week on TV. All your hard work and uh, and uh, yeah. Yeah, the staff's done great. We're ready to go. So come out and see it. You've been listening to the Fried Egg Podcast. We do the digging for you.